to HealthCast. We're your hosts, Melissa Harris and Faith Ryan. Right now, we're experiencing a historical public health moment with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. In a period of a few months, the virus has rapidly spread across the United States and globally. Just weeks ago, many of us were in the office, and now millions of Americans, including us at Government CIO, have moved to working from home, and in our case, recording from home to slow the rate of infection down and protect others. Specifically, we've been practicing the social distancing strategies issued by the White House and recommended health guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Government CIO Media and Research has also been ramping up our COVID-19 coverage from telework and telehealth to technological applications and research behind the virus and its treatment. We look to our own Chief Medical Information Officer, Jason Windsor, to provide some information to both of us and our listeners from his experience in medicine and health IT. Jason joined our organization last fall, but it followed nearly 27 years of military service as a nurse specialist in the U.S. Army. He served as the presidential nurse with the White House Medical Unit, providing 24-hour medical support to the president, vice president, their families, and supporting staff throughout the George W. Bush administration. While serving for the Bush administration, he handled public health emergencies such as the 2002 SARS epidemic. He was also deployed to Afghanistan as a trauma coordinator and has been to Iraq and Kuwait. In more recent years before joining government CIO, Jason was an Army colonel in the Defense Health Agency, where since 2017, he was the program manager responsible for overseeing the military health system's primary electronic health record applications worldwide. This health IT experience was also essential when he was chief medical information officer for the North Region and Pacific Region Medical Commands. Given his extensive experience in public health service, Jason joins us today to help answer some questions about COVID-19, from the medical response to the technological applications we see driving care and the economy. Thanks for joining us, Jason. We really appreciate it. I guess to get started, do you just want to start by telling us a little bit about your background with medicine, maybe both in practice and in your roles with medicine and government? Sure. So I am a nurse, had a career in the Army almost 27 years. My specialties were critical care and trauma, board certified in emergency nursing. And for about the last 15, 16 years, the Army has also had me dual specializing in healthcare information technology. So I've been going back and forth between bedside nursing and health IT throughout the remainder of my career. I just retired last November and have been working with government CIO as the chief health information officer for the last six months. Right now, we're undergoing sort of a historic public health emergency with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. States and whole countries are under lockdown. Schools are closing for the rest of the year. So can you tell listeners about maybe some basic information they should know about with the virus and some best practices about countering its spread? both from an individual and organizational standpoint? The basics that I've tried to express to family, friends, colleagues, and making sure that they understand I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virologist, the people that we see on TV, they are truly the experts. But to help just try to clarify some of the exorbitant amount of information that is out there is that coronavirus is... Similar to other viruses that we see, not directly related to flu or cold, but similar within their makeup, 
it is and has been defined as a severe acute respiratory syndrome virus. You may remember the term SARS, S-A-R-S, when we first saw it back in 2002. It is actually related to that. That one was called SARS-CoV-1, and this one's called SARS-CoV-2, which is actually the name of the virus. Everyone's been using the term COVID-19, which is the name of the disease, the syndrome that you get from catching the virus, um, which stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019. COVID-19 is just the compression of that terminology. Just trying to ease everyone's concerns. It is definitely, obviously, worldwide. We are trying to decrease exposure. There's been a lot of the talking of the flattening of the curve so that we don't overwhelm healthcare resources, both personnel as well as supplies and equipment. And it's just trying to slow down the spread of the disease because similar to cold symptoms and flu symptoms, Odds are that a lot of people will still get it before it completely burns itself out. And we don't know how long that will be. We don't know if it's going to be seasonal. We don't know if it's going to last for a lot longer. So right now the world, and and in our instance, the U.S. in particular, is really just trying to get a grasp on the situation while we're doing everything we can to increase testing and treat those that have the symptoms. I know there's been a lot of push on testing And it is important because we can't have good numbers, good statistics, good research until the scientists and the experts that are out there know how many people have contracted the disease. But to me, my biggest information that I'm giving my friends and family is is not everyone needs to be tested. The main people that need to be tested are are the ones that are hospitalized, the ones that are showing severe symptoms. The secondary most important that need to be tested are our healthcare professionals so that they can be cleared to continue to render care. And then from there, it'll be on case by case basis. But the amount of tests that are out there and the amount of time it takes to get a positive reading or a negative reading really is to treat the patients with most severe symptoms and our healthcare professionals right now. There's a lot of misinformation going around about the virus, and your knowledge is definitely valuable here. Are there any myths that you perhaps want to dispel about coronavirus and its response? Probably way too many myths uh, to, (laughs) to list. I think the biggest misconception is that younger adults are less likely to get it. I think that's been shown not to be true. It is much more susceptible to elderly and those with immunosuppressed, but everyone is capable of catching the coronavirus. And so trying to social distance ourselves, and even if it doesn't do us as much harm, the ability to spread it around, depending on the age, depending on how healthy you are, depending on how your body reacts, and everyone's going to react differently, then I think we all just need to understand that we're all susceptible. The name of coronavirus, people have called it the China virus, the Wuhan virus. Naming isn't as important. I mean, obviously, the Spanish flu didn't start in Spain, but we still have a name for it. The bottom line is, is this is worldwide. It started in in one area of the world. And because of how global of a society we are, it spread rather quickly and will continue to spread until we do 
active measures to decrease the spread. Awesome. Jason, given your past dual role in critical and traumatic care, as well as healthcare and information technology, and with all of the IT solutions coming out now to combat the spread of the virus, such as these chatbots that we're now seeing and artificial intelligence applications for data dashboards and data mining, compiling all of this information regarding the outbreak. What kinds of technologies do you think can help with the COVID-19 outbreak? And how can the federal government and industry help out more here? You know, I think there's various technologies that are out there, obviously, with everything that's going on in AI, syndromic surveillance, trying to map out where certain outbreaks may be, how the spread may be transferring across certain societies versus not other societies, either within the U.S. or worldwide. A lot of those analytics and data analytics will actually play a big decision in how the scientists choose to effectively combat the spread. I think other simple technologies, if you think about the use of electronic health records and the interactions that we do, obviously a lot of that is touch screens or keyboards and we're wanting to contaminate what not wanting to contaminate and we're wanting to disinfect those surfaces. I've walked through many of the trade shows and seen many of the devices that were advertised about they could almost be submerged so that you can actually really clean things much more effectively. I think some of those supply chain capabilities might be out there. Voice dictation versus actually having to touch a screen. A lot of our barcode readers and automatic generation of data into forms or into our electronic health records will come into play We're using them today. I just think that they're going to come into play a little bit more. It will change a lot of how we interact within a society, not only with how we are treating this epidemic, but how we as individuals are interacting around those that are treating this epidemic with the increased use of social media and online technologies and video chats and and all of those formats that were there. How we manage our supply chain when we're talking about supporting our small businesses and supporting our friends and colleagues in our community that we would normally see on a day-to-day basis. So from healthcare to business to general day-to-day interactions of individuals, I think technologies will continue to play a role from as as high-end as bots and AI and low-end as input methods for data. You have extensive experience working in military health since we've seen a bigger response or demand from federal agencies asking for the military to support in the COVID-19 response. What role do you think the military health system can play in responding to the pandemic at hand? Well, I can't speak for exactly what they're going to do. I've experienced and participated in, in other assistances of humanitarian missions in the past. We've seen activation of the hospital ships already on the West and the East Coast to provide surges and overflow for clinical support. There's been information that the military has reached into their supply stock. The Department of Defense has reached into their supply stock for equipment such as ventilators and oxygen concentrators for supplies such as face masks and gloves and gowns. And I think that the 
Department of Defense will continue to support that as long as they can while not risking any immediate response need anywhere else in the world, which is what the Department of Defense has to always think about for our uniformed services. Whether or not there is an activation of a field hospital on the ground, similar to the hospital ships, is something that is always in their wheelhouse and that they can do. Um, We've activated those kind of facilities and those kind of support missions humanitarianly around the world. And I think the most recent that I can recall within the U.S. was Katrina down in New Orleans when we actually set up a couple of field hospitals in the stadium down there and provided a lot of support when, when that happened. So those are potentials. Those are capabilities that the Department of Defense can choose to activate if the need comes. And those services are usually always ready and always training and can be activated on a moment's notice. I don't know how the Department of Defense is going to react with some of the other calls that governors and senators have had on initiating the military to do certain things because some of those are out of our purview. Some of those aren't necessarily meant within borders, but they have a lot of tools at their resource to help as much as we can from our subject matter experts to our physicians and nurses and clinicians and scientists that work daily anyway with CDC, FDA, other federal organizations on helping control these kinds of outbreaks or preventing an outbreaks or managing an outbreak if it becomes a, a pandemic. So I think they're already working hand in hand with the federal government, local and state as well. And I think they will continue to step up where needed, wherever the secretaries or the president may ask. Along those lines, you mentioned the response to Hurricane Katrina. What kind of other public health emergencies have you seen in your experiences, maybe SARS or H1N1, and how, in your respective positions, have you handled protocol throughout? I was actually serving in the White House when SARS hit in 2002, and there was a definite close collaboration with the CDC, with the World Health Organization. And the fortunate event when SARS first hit back in 2002 is it actually burned itself out or it was much more deadly and so deadly that it didn't give it enough time for a spread before it actually disappeared in about 10 to 14 months. I think it was gone by 2003. But as I said, the position that I was in gave me a little bit of liberty to access of information at the time, but it was mainly our senior leaders and our experts in those fields that were communicating with the experts within federal and state governments, world governments, on managing it and trying to prevent it at that time. Between then and now, we've had H1N1, like you've mentioned. We had the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. MERS, M-E-R-S, that which was, I believe, 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. And again, it was managed rather quickly and, and fairly well, but did not have the spread that COVID-19 has shown to, to spread more rapidly around the world. Some of that is just our evolving technologies, our evolving transportation. Every day, the world becomes a little bit smaller place because of business and travel and and, and how we can get from one point to the next rather quickly. So 
all of that with how we are as a society comes into play. And some of that has changed in the last 18 years since we saw the first SARS and just changes and impacts how the virus will react or our reaction to combat the virus. Gotcha. So how do you think the nation's response to the pandemic is helping or potentially hurting the spread of the virus now? Any of those kind of answers can be definitely subjective. I try to be much more objective in looking that the information that's being put out is really always to be put out at the best interest uh, of our citizens and not only of the U.S., but as the world as a whole. The experts are trying to do what they can to minimize this. No one wants this. No one wants to see individuals hurting or dying from this. But the, the reality is, as much as it pains me to say, is, is we have death and suffering around the world that we are constantly combating. This is another thing that's been added to the difficulty of, of trying to face day-to-day business. We put in regulations. We put in restrictions while still trying to maintain the well-being and, and freedom of everyone that's there. I was reading a statistic the other day that talked about vehicular death and accidents on the roads are, you know, the number eight killer around the world. And there was 1.5 million deaths on the road last year. And that's into the thousands per day. So when you try to put some of those things into perspective, it doesn't necessarily shine a nice light on that one statistic, but it makes you see that there's a whole bunch of other things going on that we try not to limit ourselves because of one thing. And I think coronavirus will be, once we have a control of this, will be one of those other things that we see how hard it is now and we will know how hard it was when we get through it. But at that point in time, it was just trying to adjust ourselves, be resilient in what we're doing and move on with our lives as safely and as responsibly as we can. When you speak about trying to normalize business as much as usual throughout this moment, what are some of the most important things you've realized are necessary to successfully work remotely during this time, however long that may last for leadership and business teams? Well, I think there'll be a large look at national infrastructure. I mean, internet is pivotal. I know that there are a lot of schools that are definitely still closed, and some have already made the decision that they have suspended for the remainder of the academic year. So where day-to-day operations come into play with me as a, as a worker at an organization that was fortunately very well poised to already be a prominent leader in teleworking, other companies are still struggling to find that niche. And some, when you talk about the service industry, can't really do it remotely or teleworking. And back to the first point of schools, if the schools aren't providing a computer, if the schools aren't providing internet access or those kind of things, they, you can't assume that everyone can do online education and online communication. So it makes it difficult to standardize a single point solution for everyone across the board in all varying economic status and network status and infrastructure status around the country. I definitely agree with that. Businesses that have the opportunity to telework are definitely getting through this a lot more easily than other industries that unfortunately don't have that ability. But 
to pivot from that, how do you think other nurses and clinicians are doing in this moment we're in? They aren't necessarily teleworking, but telemedicine has been expanded, but also they are on the front lines of making sure that this this virus doesn't get out of hand and continuously testing people if they can. How do you think they're holding up right now? Personal bias, of course. I think healthcare and medical professionals around the world are, are heroes every day. There's many times they go unsung and several times they are identified, rightfully so, and brought to light to show the great work that they are doing around the world. Medical professionals tend to be the ones that get a lot of the recognition when there are tragedies, natural emergencies, or, or disasters. And for the most part, they practice every day to manage universal precautions and safety of their patients is first and foremost in everything that they do. So there is a certain aspect that, that could say this is business as usual. However, in other areas of healthcare and clinical, that it, it's just taking to that next degree to ensure that safety, not only of your patients, but also of yourself, because it becomes a first responder mentality that if you go down, who's going to care for the others? So you have to look at yourself and keep yourself healthy so that you can provide care to multiple people, because if one doctor or one nurse or one specialty clinician, pathologist, laboratory analyst, if they go down, then you think about the hundreds of samples or the dozens of patients that they would be treating on a daily basis that now get compounded to the other people that are trying to, to cover for them. So they, I think they're doing great. I think there's a lot of other unsung heroes that we don't think about that a lot of society took for granted on our day-to-day business. Uh, lately, I've been seeing the news on truck drivers. You didn't tend to think about our supply chain around the United States and around the world for that matter, but it is definitely coming to light. You didn't used to think that grocery stores and drug stores and department stores were essential personnel, but they definitely need to be there to stock the shelves and, and to provide the supplies and resources for everyone that is trying to do that social distancing. So I think there's a lot more day-to-day heroes uh, in addition to our healthcare professionals that are trying to maintain our society in as much of a normal process as possible that probably don't get the recognition that a, a doctor or a nurse or another clinician might. But they're all trying to do their part. They're all trying to do what they can to help a customer whether that's a patient, whether that's a family member or a loved one, uh, to help each other uh, in our neighborhoods and and across our communities. And so I think America in particular, as a proud American myself, we tend to rise in adversity and we tend to come together as a nation when faced with diversity. And, And I think a lot of the other countries around the world are doing that and the world as a whole is kind of seeing that we're all in this situation together. And hopefully the better traits of our nature will rise to the top. That's definitely a a positive note that I think that everyone needs to hear right now to feel hope and to know that we can get through this together. Before we depart, is there any other information or advice that you want to give listeners? Just again, to maintain hope, know that this too will pass. I have no idea how long or what it will take, but we are definitely 
better position today than we were yesterday and definitely better positioned yesterday than we were even 18 years ago when we first discovered the SARS virus. So the fact that we can communicate just like we are doing right now remotely, the fact that we can see each other through FaceTime, iPhone chat, Android chats, all the other technologies that are out there allows us to not be as disconnected as we think we might be in these times of social distancing and and self-quarantining. I don't really want to use the isolation term because we're, we're not isolated. We have so many means to us. Even if it means walking on your sidewalk in your neighborhood and talking to people from a distance and through the windows, get outside, get the fresh air. Ultraviolet light is great for combating this and it's great for the health in general. If the weather holds out and wherever you are, expose yourself to the natural sunlight and and natural air. It'll do wonders. Well, thank you so much, Jason. We really appreciate hearing your insight and also your hopeful words. Well, I do what I can. So thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.